G'day, Annie McLaughlin here for this week's edition of Stick Together, focusing on union news, worker stories and social justice issues. This program is produced in the Melbourne studios of 3CR on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation and we pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. This has been an important week for workers internationally and locally. In Victoria and Tasmania, we celebrate the first eight-hour day victory as our Labor Day on Monday, March the 9th. This was a world first, and as legend has it, stonemasons working on Melbourne Uni in 1856 downed tools and walked from worksite to the next, advocating and gaining support for the idea of eight hours work, eight hours recreation and eight hours rest. It was also about sharing out the work, not just overworking some. Great idea, a reasonable idea, a worker's idea. Having won it so long ago, employers, governments, business have been chip, chip, chipping away until now we have insecure work, casualisation, underemployment and a predatory privatised social security system. But workers are studying the issues within unions, remembering the victories of the past. During the past week was International Women's Day, or as we like to call it, International Working Women's Day, because it was in fact working women coming together to fight low wages and nasty conditions that struck the first blow for International Women's Day. But just like the rollback on the eight-hour day, the fight for safety, respect and equality for women at work is still on and we report from last week's RAW conference, Women's Rights at Work. But first, some union news. The Victorian branch of the RTBU, Rail, Tram and Bus Union, announced on the 28th of February a huge RTBU win in their EBA negotiations with Yarra Trams. The tram drivers have taken protected action several times with stoppages from 10am to 2pm on four days over the length of the dispute. A key issue for the drivers has been Yarra Tram's desire to raise the part-time cap to introduce part-time drivers, which would reap millions in profits for the company, who would reduce their commitments to the workforce but undermine workers' take-home pay, job security and the safety of the public. When the RTBU projected that there would be further protected action during the upcoming Grand Prix, scheduled for 12th, 13th, 14th and 15th of March in Melbourne, the state government threatened to intervene by going to the Fair Work Commission to try and squash the workers' legitimate action. The RTBU announced that the tram executive unanimously approved an in-principle settlement. The deal includes a rollover of terms and conditions and major improvements including substantial medical examination improvements, disciplinary counselling policy, women's advocate, sexual harassment and violence clauses, rostering improvements, commitments to timetable design meetings, Christmas rosters to be finalised five weeks in advance, point duty allowances for special events increased to $75 plus meal allowance, eight hours straight shifts with paid meal break for point duty at special events, improvements to AO 
shift swaps, transition to retirement program, superannuation, improvement to annual leave, increased allowances. The union said Yarra Trams wanted to remove the part-time cap entirely. We fought them off. Yarra Trams then wanted 35%, then 22%, then 15%, and we fought them off on each occasion. Like all good membership organisations, the RTBU Tram Executive is taking the potential agreement to meetings at depots across the network for endorsement. In Western Australia, another union victory, but this time for United Workers Union. Thousands of health workers in Western Australia have won a decade-long fight against health care privatisation, with the McGowan government announcing key Fiona Stanley Hospital services would be brought back into public hands. United Workers Union, the union for hospital support staff, including cleaners, catering staff and orderlies, welcomed the winding back of Circo's $4.3 billion hospital contract, which would deliver better jobs for more than 600 workers and better care for the community, said the union. Health worker and union member Phyllis de Gross was among thousands who stood together and spoke out against the privatisation of health services in Western Australia. I am thrilled about what our campaign has achieved. It's better for the patients, better for the public and better all around, she said. United Workers Union Western Australian State Secretary Carolyn Smith said the move was a turning point for workers across the country facing threats of privatisation every single day. The Western Australian Government will spend up to $93 million to bring 650 jobs back under state control in a significant scaling back of privatisation of services at the hospital. The union led the fight against the privatisation of FSH by the multinational Circo, stating parliamentary inquiries into Circo's management of FSH services found the contract was established with no cost-benefit analysis no assessment of clinical and other risks and poorly scoped financial modelling. The New South Wales Teachers Federation reacted strongly against the recent education funding allocations by the federal government, which has gifted $5 billion to private schools with the public system getting nothing. Teacher Federation President Angelo Gravialatos said... More money for special deals for already overfunded schools to transition to even more favourable funding deals exposes the government's desired destruction of needs-based funding in this country. This additional money is on top of a $1.2 billion choice in affordability. New South Wales public school enrolments are increasing. Our schools educate the overwhelming majority of students, including the majority of those from disadvantaged backgrounds said Mr Graviolatos. We're doing this at the same time the Morrison government is also delivering $1.9 billion in capital funding to private schools while delivering nothing to public schools. Public schools in New South Wales are barely funded at 90% of the funding they need. It is unacceptable that we have a Prime Minister and a government who continues to ignore public schools, their families and teachers. In Shepparton, Victoria... Australian Manufacturing Workers Union members at SPC, the fruit and vegetable canning business, have taken protected action consisting of three short work stoppages and a ban on overtime for Monday's public holiday as part of their EBA negotiations, which have been in progress since new owners took over in last August. 
The company was sold by Coca-Cola Amatol for $40 million in June 2019 to Melbourne-based Shepparton Partners Collective, the joint venture company comprising Perma Funds Management and the Eights, has domestic and international experience in food, supply chain, finance, retail, agribusiness and technology. What's at stake for the workers? Workers have been negotiating to keep their existing conditions with a basic cost of living adjustment. The new owners have been unwilling to accept this, instead attempting to cut over 50 conditions from their EBA. AMWU National Food Industry Secretary Jason Hefford said, after the workers voted down the proposed agreement in January, SPC refused to negotiate with its workers until this projected action was agreed to. The SPC CEO's comments calling protected industrial action selfish and self-serving are a disgraceful attempt to play on current public fears about the coronavirus at the expense of workers trying to negotiate a fair deal. You always stick together workers' stories, union news and social justice issues. That's the sound of chance at the recent International Women's Day march held in Melbourne on Wednesday the 5th of March. On the Tuesday, over 100 union women gathered at Victoria Trades Hall as part of the Women's Rights at Work, the RAW conference, to work on how to get safety, respect and equality for women at work. Let's hear from Will Strack, one of the assistant secretaries at Victoria Trades Hall, who opened the conference. We've done raw chats, so we've spoken to a lot of women in Victoria who've given us feedback about what they think is important um, to them in workplaces. Uh, We've spent some time in the 2018 and 2019 conferences talking about these things too. Essentially what's come through time and time again when we have these conversations is that while it might manifest a bit differently, broadly speaking, women all say these are the things that they think that they've experienced that they think need to change in workplaces. So for us, we've thought about those under kind of three category headings, safe, respected, equal. Safe's pretty obvious. Respected, what I would say... We understand that to mean fully able to participate in the workforce. So the capacity to participate completely and fully and equally in our workforce. And in terms of equal, we would say that's the ability to achieve equal economic independence through the option of work and equal pay at work. So based on all of those conversations, what we've done is put together a kind of list of demands for what we say workplaces ought to be and the kinds of ways, some of the examples of ways that we think that they could be delivered. So for us, and I think this is a consistent um, message that we've gotten, that safety means an end to sexual harassment and gender-based violence at work and an end to discrimination at work. And in terms of some tangible measures, there are lots of different ways to deliver this, but some of the tangible things that have been talked about um, within the union movement are things like actually creating a positive duty on employers to to fix those things. Rather than waiting for a woman to make a complaint and then dealing with it as a one-off thing, actually imposing a duty on employers that says you actually have to do these things. 
which is partly what dealing with these things in an OHS frame does for us, but we need to be able to do that more generally. That needs to be broadly understood. We want larger penalties for breaches. I don't know how many times we've heard the story of a woman who raises a matter, for instance, of discrimination, and she gets some kind of payout, but she moves on and he stays in the organisation and then probably gets a promotion in the process. There needs to be larger penalties that actually tell companies they need to take these things seriously. We want a simple process to deal with claims of harassment, gendered violence and discrimination. We want that to exist in fair work. These are workplace-related issues. Fair work is the place and space that we resolve these things. It should not be up to a woman, for instance, to go to the Equal Opportunity Commission, which in some cases effectively are voluntary um, jurisdiction. Employers choose whether or not they're going to respond to the claim. And it also means that's often an individualised process. We are trade unions. We understand our power to be to bring collective claims and to deal with matters collectively. We can do that in fair work in a way that we can't, for instance, through the Equal Opportunity Commission. Um, so we're not saying get rid of that as a way of resolving those mechanisms. It's a really important thing. We're saying let's have options for how we want to resolve these things. And then the last is support for domestic and family uh, victims of domestic and family violence to stay in work. And for us in Victoria, that's always been about setting a minimum of 20 days family violence leave. Now, I was saying earlier, there is no greater manifestation of the challenge that we have in trying to push these things through than the fact that it is 10 years since the first of those clauses was achieved in an enterprise bargaining agreement at the Surf Coast Shire. And what we have delivered over 10 years of talking about the impact of family violence and what it means for women in our community and what we have delivered thus far more broadly is that an award standard of five unpaid days. So what we would say is we need to be delivering better than that for, um, in order to ensure that women are safe and supported in the workplace. In terms of being able to fully participate in the workforce, what we would say is currently there is that carer's penalty. Women who do the bulk of the unpaid caring work currently experience a penalty for that. So there are two ways to um, change that. One is to make it so that the caring responsibilities are more equally shared. And there is a generation of, for instance, young men now who would say they want to be more active and engaged, particularly when they are become dads, all right? So for us, that's about family-friendly workplaces. Uh, and when we say that we want flexible working arrangements, we mean flexibility in our terms, not the way the bosses have appropriated the term flexible. So we want, the, we want it to be effectively a mandated entitlement to be able to get um, flexible working arrangements to manage caring responsibilities for all workers. We want 26 paid parental leave for all new parents. No such thing as maternity leave, paternity leave, primary caregiver, secondary caregiver. The international evidence tells us that if the caring responsibility is done for both parents, then effectively the stigmatisation of that goes down. And by the way, it's also good for kids to have, you know, both parents there. So we would say rather than primary and secondary caregiver, we want everyone to have access to 26 weeks. And in fact, in some countries, they penalise the parents if both parents don't take it. If one of the parents doesn't take it, then the other doesn't get the full entitlement. 
And that's about effectively encouraging both parents to engage in taking parental leave. And interestingly enough, when everyone takes parental leave, workplaces become better able somehow magically to manage periods of parental leave. It's an extraordinary thing when everyone has to take it that somehow they find a way that they currently can't seem to find. We want superannuation on top of that. We want fully funded early childhood care education. Accessible, fully funded childcare and early childhood education. Tell me that is not going to make a difference to the working lives of families and women in particular. Fully funded three and four-year-old kindy. So we have in Victoria, the state government's come on board with that. We would say that that should happen at a national level. Just proper full funding of three and four-year-old kindy. And lastly, the removal of barriers and the provision of targeted support for women, especially those from marginalised communities, to work. So we can have this conversation, but for people who come from recently arrived migrant communities, from the called communities, their experience is not that they... They don't talk to us about discrimination they experience at work. They talk about the discrimination that means that they can't get into work. So we need to make sure that we are talking about raising up women all across the board. And that means doing some work around making sure that women can all go into work without dealing with that kind of discrimination. And then the last one is about economic independence, women's economic independence. Pay equity for every woman across every workplace and industry. So for us, that means adopting gender pay equity principles. Gender pay equity principles are, are the way that we can measure what's happening in relation to the pay gap in workplaces and across industries. And it allows us to do that in a more consistent way. We would say there should be a positive duty on employers to take steps. And that includes doing workplace gender equality audits and putting in place plans. It is no longer enough to call employers who do these things the champions. Champions of change. We don't want champions. We want equality. You should not be a champion for doing something that is just... This should be a matter of course. And the trouble with calling people who do that champions is it means that everybody else goes, well, I don't feel like I need to be a champion. I'm just going to be middle of the road. And what does middle of the road mean? Not doing anything. So we would say you have to put in place positive duties. We want um, fair work to be able to deal with these in a better way than they have. The Sachs Equal Pay case decided in 2012 pushed forward the envelope of what kind of claim you could bring to deliver workplace um, fair work, particularly fair pay, particularly for what was a female-dominated low-paid sector. But then the United Voice campaign for early childhood educators, the fair work pushed right back against that and closed the door on it. So it is incredibly difficult to do these claims. You basically have to find men in the same industry doing the same work who are being paid more to demonstrate that there is a gender pay gap. And the problem for that for us here is that the bulk of the gender pay gap is actually now related to the gender segregation of our workforce. If you do caring work, you're more likely to be a woman. 
So if you build social infrastructure, you're more likely to be a woman. If you build physical infrastructure, you're more likely to be a man. And so the bulk of our gender pay gap is the fact that we value one kind of work more than another kind of work. So there's no point saying that early childhood educators, if you're a man, you're getting paid more than a woman, which is probably true, but it's not how you can successfully run an equal pay case. So we need Fair Work to have the expertise to run those. That means having an expert panel who understand those questions and we need to make it simpler and more straightforward to run the cases. Um, Also, we want industry-wide bargaining. This is particularly important for low-paid female-dominated sectors where going workplace by workplace by workplace is very difficult. Much better to try and run industry-wide bargaining campaigns where you can deliver an uplift to a lot of people at the one time. But obviously we'd want unions to be involved and engaged in that process. Let's get rid of the gender superannuation gap. Dealing with equal pay can do that. We can do a lot by doing that. But I'm 50 years old. I'm 54 years old and I've been in the workforce quite some time and I know that my superannuation is less than if I were a man who'd done the equivalent work over that time. So we need to address that and particularly we need to put some specific measures in place to support that cohort of older women who are reaching, who are basically close to retirement age now and who are um, reaching the reality that they are going to retire into poverty and potentially homelessness. There is an um, a large number of older women now living in their cars. This is not on, um, and that is because they didn't get super. They've earned less over. They've, they've earned less over their working lives. They've taken substantive breaks over their working lives, and it was a, a notion when they started work. In some cases, um, they started work before superannuation, and it was also an expectation that they would be able to retire on their partner's superannuation. That was the expectation then. That is no longer the expectation we should work with. We want penalty rates reinstated. So who had penalty rates removed? Retail workers, hospitality workers. Which other sectors that are dominated by women? Retail and hospitality, particularly low-paid women. So the cut to penalty rates has overwhelmingly impacted on women and we should reverse that, just as a matter of gender equity. Um, And the removal of insecure and precarious work arrangements. Women are overwhelmingly concentrated in those kinds of arrangements. And then the last one there is we want decent and accessible social support for single parents and women not currently in paid work. And as an example of something that really should happen as a result of that is we want an increase to the single parent benefit, which was so shamefully cut. It should be increased and it should be done in such a way so that we are supporting not just those women but their families and their children as well in that process. Can you just give me an idea about why it's so important to have this conference? Uh, It's always a good opportunity to get um, women activists, women unionists together to talk about the challenges and also then to plot out the schemes around how we're going to change the world. Last year, it was about women's strike. That mm-hmm. was what you were talking about. But it was what came out of it was that a lot of work needs to be done to actually build momentum. And that's what this is about, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. So I think the vibe was, look, in an ideal world, you could just pick up the phone and go, yep, we're all out tomorrow, we're out on the grass, we're, you know. Um, but a lot of work needs to be done to build up collective, to build up understanding, so, um, you know, to 
so that women understand that the challenges that they're facing are common challenges, universal challenges. We can build collective around that. And once we do that, it, it, it's much easier to build the momentum that you need towards making massive change. Now, the, the um, strategy of incremental change probably hasn't worked. It hasn't worked. I think we know that. I, I keep saying to people, like, sexual harassment laws about that have been in place for decades, and yet two out of three women are still saying that they experienced sexual harassment or gender violence in the workplace. Um, ten years ago, we started the conversation about, you know, the first union got uh, um, family and domestic violence leave, 20 days paid in an enterprise bargaining agreement, and we've been talking about this now for ten years, and we are the best we've managed to get more broadly, of course in enterprise bargaining we continue to push it, but more broadly the best we've gotten is five days of unpaid leave in awards. Now, given that the number of proportion of workers actually covered by union negotiated enterprise bargaining agreements is going backwards, it means that we're not... The, the idea that what we can deliver in one workplace flows through everywhere else, that that chain is broken now. I notice that the tactic of uh, creating chapters, raw chapters, is uh, an interesting approach. Yeah, I think that's about saying that um, we want uh, to get massive change, you have to build up a movement and this, and you have to give people the power and the capacity to take action in their own communities. There are lots of campaigns where that we know that that works. Um, effectively, it's an old union structure, you know, delegates and all of that, only it's a, a kind of, we broaden it out now and say, if you want to be active and engaged in the campaign and you've got five friends that want to do something together, well, fuck it, form a chapter and let's go, let's go do some shit. And solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. Thanks very much, Will. Yet what falls on earth is weaker than the feeble strength of one. For the union makes us strong. Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. That's it for Stick Together this week. Stick Together is produced at 3CR Studios in Melbourne. It is made possible through the financial support of the Community Radio Foundation and we come to you on the Community Radio Network through your local community radio station. The podcast is available at 3cr.org.au and iTunes and you can contact the producers of the show at sticktogether3cr at gmail.com. My name's Annie McLaughlin. Remember, wherever you are, whatever you do, there is a union for you and until next time, stick together. We've been listening to the Union Choir who were at the Women's Day Rally in Melbourne. We give the last word to the rally. And now the Latinx, Latinx feminists are going to close up this rally. Thank you.